Well, good morning. It is good to be with you all today. Glad that the ice passed and let us come here. But before we get started and dive into the sermon, would you please join me in prayer? Lord God, may the words of my mouth as your servant and the meditations of all of our hearts of your children be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning we pick up on the Gospel of Luke, which we are journeying through until Easter time. And today we hit chapter 4. In today's text we have the first recorded sermon of Jesus. So it's a pretty big deal. This sermon is recorded at his hometown of Nazareth. And in Luke's gospel, it is this sermon that launches Jesus into his broader public ministry of preaching and healing. So some might call this Jesus' inauguration speech. It's a speech that's kind of summarizing what he plans to do in his coming years of service. So who knows who else is giving an inauguration speech this week? Hey, yeah? Donald Trump, our president-elect of our country, plans to make his inauguration speech. And I was reading a little bit of the news this week, and CNN says that he plans to make his speech short, um, maybe historically short. And it's also predicted to have an historic number of viewers because of our election that was a little bit unusual this year. And yet, I bet you almost anything that Jesus' speech can beat Trump's in both its brevity, and its historic impact. I bet you Jesus trumps Trump. You know I had to make a word play on his name. Yes, because Jesus' speech, his inaugural address is, get this, nine words long. And it is these nine words that have completely altered the shape of human history forever. These nine words are, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, at the outset, this doesn't seem too spectacular, does it? That is, until we understand the scripture to which Jesus is referring. So that's what we're going to do first this morning, is to unpack Luke 4, 18 to 19 at the beginning of our text, and see what does it mean that Jesus fulfills it, and then next we'll consider the listener's responses, how we respond to Jesus. Now, I know I haven't read the text yet. We're going to get there in just a minute. Because before we do, I wanted to give you a little primer, a little summary of this Luke 4 passage and where it falls in the whole of the gospel. So to do that, we're going to use a little creative imagery from a clip produced by a group called The Bible Project. If you want to watch the entirety of the video, you will find the little link here in your centerfold of your bulletin, and you can find all sorts of free videos there that I really encourage you to check out. But today we're going to watch just a three-minute clip that really goes over this Luke 4 passage. It picks up where Brandon left off last week with um, the ministry of John the Baptist. So please join me now in watching this. The Gospel according to Luke it's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and can it's you, actually part one of a unified two-volume work, Luke Acts. 
If you compare the opening lines of both of these books, it's okay. clear that they come from the same author. That's all right. And there we'll are just internal clues in the book of Acts, as well as an early tradition that identifies the author as Luke, the traveling companion and co-worker of Paul the Apostle, who we know was also a doctor. Luke opens his work with a preface telling us how and why he wrote this book. He acknowledges that there's many other fine accounts of Jesus' life out there, but he wanted to go back to the eyewitness traditions of as many early disciples as he could in order to produce what he calls an orderly account about the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now that word fulfilled shows us why Luke wrote this account. For him, the story of Jesus isn't just ancient history. He wants to show how it's the fulfillment of the long covenant story of God and Israel, and bigger than that, of the story of God in the whole world. The book's design is fairly clear. There's a long introduction that sets up the stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. Then in chapters 3 to 9, Luke presents a robust portrait of Jesus and his mission in his home region of Galilee. After that, the large midsection of the book is Jesus' long journey to Jerusalem, which leads to the story's climax, Jesus' final week in Jerusalem leading up to his death and resurrection, which then leads on into the book of Acts. In this video, we're just going to focus on the first half of Luke's gospel. The extended introduction tells in parallel the birth stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. So you have this elderly priestly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then this young unmarried woman, Mary and Joseph. They both receive an unlikely divine promise that they're going to have a son. Both promises are fulfilled then, as John and then Jesus are born, and both parents sing poems of celebration. Now, these poetic songs, they're filled with echoes from the Old Testament, psalms and prophets, showing how these children will fulfill God's ancient promises. But these poems also preview each child's role in the story to follow. So John is the prophetic messenger promised in the Torah and the prophets who's going to prepare Israel to meet their God. And Jesus, he's the messianic king promised to David, who's going to bring God's reign over Israel and God's blessing to the nations, just like he promised to Abraham. After this, Mary brings Jesus to the Jerusalem temple for his dedication, and two elderly prophets, Anna and Simeon, they see Jesus, and they recognize who he is. And Simeon sings his own song, a poem inspired by the prophet Isaiah. He says, this child is God's salvation for Israel, and he will become a light to the nations. So with all this anticipation, the story moves forward into the next main section, where Luke presents Jesus and his mission. He sets the stage with John's renewal movement at the Jordan River, where he's calling a new, repentant, recommitted Israel into existence through baptism. He's preparing for the arrival of God's kingdom. And then Jesus appears as the leader of this new Israel, and he's marked out by the Spirit and the voice of God from heaven. He is the beloved Son of God. After this, Luke follows with the genealogy, and it traces Jesus' origins back to David, then back to Abraham, and then all the way back to Adam from the book of Genesis. Luke's claiming here that Jesus is the messianic king of Israel who will bring God's blessing, but not only to Israel, the family of Abraham. He is here for all the sons of Adam, for all humanity. After this, Luke has strategically placed the story of Jesus going to his hometown, Nazareth, where he launches his public mission. At a synagogue gathering, Jesus stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and freedom for the prisoners, new sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. Now, along with the other Gospels, Jesus is presented here. He's the Messianic King bringing the good news of God's kingdom. 
But what Luke uniquely highlights are the social implications of Jesus' mission. So he brings freedom. The Greek word is aphasis. It literally means release, and it refers to the ancient Jewish practice of the year of Jubilee described in Leviticus 25. It's when all Israelite slaves were released, when people's debts were canceled, when land that was sold is returned back to families. It's all a symbolic reenactment of God's liberating justice and mercy. And then Jesus says that this good news of release is specifically for the poor. Now, in the Old Testament, the poor, or in Hebrew, ani, it's a much broader category than just people who don't have very much money. It refers also to people of low social status in their culture, like people with disabilities or women and children and the elderly. It also can include social outsiders, like people of other ethnic groups or people whose poor life choices have placed them outside acceptable religious circles. And Jesus says that God's kingdom is especially good news for these people. So after this, Luke immediately puts in front of us a large block of stories showing us what Jesus' good news for the poor looks like. It involves the healing of a bedridden sick woman or a man who has a skin disease or someone who's paralyzed. There are stories here also about Jesus welcoming into his community a tax collector like Levi, who's not financially poor, but he is a social outsider. There's a story about Jesus forgiving a prostitute. Luke showing us how Jesus' kingdom brought restoration and reversal of people's whole life circumstances. He's expanding the circle of people who get invited in to discover the healing power of God's kingdom. And as Jesus' mission attracts a large following, he does something even more provocative. He forms these people into a new Israel. But well, if you want to watch more, you're going to have to keep coming back or go online and look at it for yourself. Well, now that we have this overarching summary that we understand Luke's intention in the gospel and then where we get to in the sermon for today, in the text for today, let us look in detail at this text. Let us now, I uh, skipped a page. Oh, this is really funny. Oh, it printed double-sided. There we go. I only had odd-numbered pages on my sermon. There we go. This is much better. Okay, if you would like to follow along in your Bible, they, um, if you brought one along or there's some in the pews underneath you, we're in Luke 4. We're going to pick up at verse 14 and just read through verse 22 for now, and then we'll go to the second half later. So hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled 
in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? This is the word of the Lord. So here in our text for today, we have Jesus returning to his home synagogue in Nazareth. These are a couple of pictures that were taken just last week in the area of Galilee from a friend leading a trip there. Um, this, this isn't Nazareth particularly, but this is what it would look like around the area of Nazareth. This is a site of an ancient synagogue where they would gather weekly. And then the surrounding rural land, um, Galilee was very rural. Um, a lot of peasant workers lived there. So here's Jesus. He's returning to a site like this, his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. Jesus is about 30 years old, so if you get picked on for having young pastors, just tell them Jesus started off at 32. Just hope we last past 33. (laughs) So Jesus, here he is, 30 years old. He's been off, done all of his training, got in some pulpit supplies, and word has spread that he's a pretty good preacher. And his hometown family and friends are really eager to have him back, to hear how their boy has grown up to become this preacher. And at first, Jesus' sermon goes over really, really well. Our text says that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. Look at old Joe's son, they say proudly. But from what we read in our text, as I mentioned before, Jesus has only said nine words. The scripture reading and then nine words. You know how much I wish I could stand up here, read the text, say nine words? You'd all be amazed and then we go off and that would just be amazing, right? Yeah. So what is it about these nine words that's so amazing that leaves the crowd in awe? Well, it's not particularly Jesus' charisma or his eloquence as a speaker. Rather, it's the content of his words. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what does it mean? What is the scripture he's referring to? What does it mean that he fulfills it? So let's take a look. Luke 4, 18 to 19 is from Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2, the first half of it, and also a little line from Isaiah 58, verse 6. These are the texts which Jesus reads as he unrolls that huge scroll. So most Old Testament authors are pretty sure that these particular texts from Isaiah are hearkening back to another text, Leviticus 25. Now, Leviticus 25 gives instructions for the year of Jubilee because that is the chapter that lays out the sabbatical principle. So the sabbatical principle is this. Every seven days, you rest the weekly Sabbath. Every seven years, you give your land a rest. No farming, no doing anything on there. You farmers in here are gritting your teeth. That would not be good for the income, right? (laughs) But they do. Every seven years, they rest. And then, every seven years is the year of Jubilee. 
in the literal language, it is the year of release. It is a year of ultimate release. All slaves are freed. Debts are canceled. If you own, if you had acquired land through different um, means of wealth or work you'd done, you give it back to the original family owners. As our video said, the year of Jubilee was a symbolic act of God's liberating justice and mercy. Now, this economic program that was in place, it helped to prevent the powerful from monopolizing resources. You can't store up too much for yourself. The rich can't get too rich, and the poor can't get too poor. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, aphasis, which is this word release, it means forgiveness. That's how we translate it. So it's another kind of release. It's a release from sins that was comparable to the way we release debts or the way you released other things. This was a release from sins. So this is all wrapped up into the year of Jubilee, all these different meanings. So every 50 years, you celebrate the year of Jubilee. It's like a reset button. No matter how your life has been going, every 50 years you get to hit this button and you start over. All debt, all trouble that has happened gets wiped away. Everyone gets a clean slate. Sounds pretty nice, huh? So what is Jesus doing here in the Nazareth synagogue announcing that in him the year of Jubilee is fulfilled? Does he mean this literally, that they need to practice all of these things? Perhaps. But Jesus' meaning is richer and deeper and more expansive even than that. But he's pulling on these jubilee themes to explain what he's doing. So this, in short, these jubilee themes, these are Jesus' mission statements. This is what Jesus has come to do, to bring ultimate release. Release from our personal sins, yes. But also release from larger social sins. Systemic sins of injustice and oppression that build up over the years that cause certain people to become really powerful and sometimes exclude other people. There were problems that were going on in the early times around Jesus' day when the Israelites were wanting to exclude the Gentiles. And now Luke is writing to a congregation that is full of both Israelites and Gentiles. And so he's saying this is no longer just for the Israelites. This is for the Gentiles too. You can't have all of God's promises just for yourself. Jesus has come to hit a reset button, if you will. He's come to bring us back to God's original intention of shalom for all the world, a world in which all people live together in harmony, in which all people receive God's abundant blessings, and all people live in harmony with God and one another. That is why it is said that God's kingdom comes as especially good news to the poor to those of low social status in their culture, whether that's a low status because of finances or 
skin color or gender or age or ability, whatever it is, Jesus is good news because in God's kingdom, all are equal. There's no longer a social pyramid, no longer monopolies of power and influence. To quote Galatians, there's no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And that's why God's kingdom is especially good news for those who are social outsiders. To those who, no matter what they do, whether because it's a checkered past that they can't seem to shake, or because of a cultural prejudice that leaves them always three steps behind, if they feel like they can never earn their way into God's kingdom, no matter how hard they try, this comes as good news, because God's kingdom can't be earned. It's a free gift of grace that is offered to all. And all throughout his ministry, after this inaugural address, Jesus goes on to not just continue declaring these promises, but enacting them in his life. He touches the untouchables, those who had been shunned. He welcomes the outsiders. He dines with sinners and those who have been ostracized from the community. We read these stories in the Gospels and don't realize how really radical they were for someone of Jesus' prominence to be going to outsiders like this and to be wrapping them in to the community. Through this, through his words and actions, Jesus is announcing that the Jubilee promises aren't just for the Israelites, aren't just for those who are really good and do all the right things, and the promises aren't just for the future. They're also for today. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's Jesus already and not yet kingdom. It's already arrived, though not yet fulfilled. I wonder today, how are Jesus' words in Luke 4 good news to you? I wonder if you have ever felt like a social outsider. Have you ever felt looked down upon? Have you ever felt left out? Have you ever felt oppressed? Maybe it's because of some past mistake that people just won't let go of. Maybe it's because of the way you were born or a situation you were born into. Well, hear this good news today. Christ has come to bring release. To say you are welcome in God's family you belong here. You are valued here. You can rest secure here. In the future and today, you are welcome in God's kingdom. And it's true, we know, sadly, that this kingdom is not yet fully realized. We know all too well that injustice and exclusion run rampant in our world and our society will always be fractured until Christ returns again. But even when we still experience these injustices and see this harm in our world, we can be assured Christ is coming back one day, 
And on that day, the Jubilee promises will be fulfilled once and for all. Total shalom, total peace and justice will reign. And that is really good news that keeps us going, does it not? But the good news doesn't stop just there. Because when we are engrafted into God's family through Christ, we receive not only belonging and security, but we also get purpose. We are anointed with the Holy Spirit as was Christ, and we are invited to participate in Christ's continuing work of release. We are called to follow Jesus by the Spirit to bring good news through word and deed to the poor, to the blind, to the oppressed, like Jesus did on earth. We are invited to declare release in all of its forms, release from sins through the death and resurrection of Christ, release from shame and feelings of unworthiness for those who feel ostracized, for those who feel oppressed. Release from blindness for those who don't yet know these jubilee promises that are offered by Christ, who don't yet know the peace and joy and security that can be theirs. Like Jesus, we are invited to witness to these jubilee realities, not just through our words, but through our actions. And I think you all get this pretty well. Pastor Brandon and I have been so impressed the last year and a half to see Christ's Spirit working among you here in this congregation and in the community at large. A few examples of the way we've seen the Spirit living out this passage through you are Kids Hope Mentoring Program, which you're going to hear a little bit about from Liz and Wendy in the Sunday School Hour. There's also the Hershey Backpack program, the shoeboxes at Christmas, tons of events of Mission Lafayette, which I can't name all of because we'd be here a really long time. But it's not just these special events, it's also your everyday lives, the way you warmly welcome anyone who walks through these doors, the way you go out of your way to help those who have been dealt a hard hand in life, the way you teach our youth to value each and every person they encounter both by what you say and by what you do. These are just a few of the ways that I hope you are affirmed that Christ is working in and through you to bring Jubilee promises to life here in Lafayette. And there are other beautiful examples of Jubilee happening outside of this church in our community. One we had to highlight because it has the name Jubilee in it, is the Lafayette Urban Ministries Jubilee Christmas. Who's familiar with this program? Anyone? Yeah? It's really cool. I just learned about it this year because our congregation just became a partner with LUM, and this is something we're considering doing next year. Um, It's a program where all parents who are under-resourced can come and pick out presents for free for their children And so they're given dignity and respect as they pick out gifts that they know their kids are really going to want. Um, It's a beautiful way of showing Christ's jubilee promises to them. So with some of these examples in mind, I wonder how God might be calling you specifically to bring good news through word and deed to the poor, the blind, and the oppressed. I encourage you this week to pull out your bulletin, take this home, and 
keep pondering these, these definitions, these expanded definitions of freedom and poor and recovery of sight to the blind, and consider ways that God might be calling you to be an enactor of these jubilee promises to those around you. Now, maybe this is through a relationship. Maybe it's through a particular ministry. Maybe it's through financial support. There are lots of different ways that God can use you. For our students, our middle school and high school students, I think this text is especially pertinent. I've come to believe that maybe those years are some of the worst in terms of social stratification. Anyone agree with me? They were rough. It's a vulnerable time. But you can stand in the gap. You can stand up for that girl who's always being left out, that boy who's always being picked on. You can stand in and offer them Christ's welcoming presence. You can make a huge difference. For those in the workplace, maybe Christ's jubilee promises for you mean making sure that everyone's treated fairly. The, The supplies you use come from resources that provide fair wages and good treatment of workers. For all of us, it means keeping our eyes open to those in our society, whether because of age or gender or race or background or whatever it is, whoever feels left out, whoever feels uncared for, that we go the extra mile to include them in the community, to show them Christ's love and care. Perhaps Christ is calling you to something new, maybe something the same, but just an encouragement to keep doing it. But there is one thing that is for sure. If Jesus has come to fulfill Jubilee promises, and by the Spirit Jesus lives within us, then we should be a Jubilee people, should we not? Jubilee should be our entire way of life. So that's our first point, unpacking the texts of the sermon. And now we have to turn to the rest of our text. That was kind of a a good, make-you-feel-good Yay, part of the text. Now the next part gets a little interesting. So, let's hear the rest of the story, verses 15 to 30. Hear the word of the Lord. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up drove him out of the town, led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Did anyone else experience a little bit of whiplash in there? What's going on? Jesus comes and brings this good news. The people are amazed. They are loving this stuff. They are eating it up. And then they try to throw him off a cliff. What has happened? 
Well, the people love Jesus at first because he is saying all these things in his hometown village. They're thinking, if these jubilee promises are true, this is really good news for us and poor little lonely Nazareth. Yes, bring on the jubilee promises to us. But then Jesus goes on the offensive. He kind of picks a little fight with them. And he seems to discern something in their statements that they expect some sort of special favoritism or privilege. It's as if Jesus says, you know, you're going to start asking me to do stuff here that you heard I did at Capernaum. And then he says, no prophet is welcomed in his hometown. Let me tell you about these two prophets who did things for people outside of the reach of Israel. Now, it's really, really important to note that Jesus is not saying, ha-ha, I'm the Messiah for the Gentiles, but not for the Jews. I'm here for them, not for you. He's not saying that. In the same way, Elijah and Elisha were sent first to Israel and then to all the nations. In the same way, it is with Jesus. What Jesus is saying here is that People of Nazareth, my hometown people, if you are expecting some special portion, some kind of special treatment because I'm from here, you're going to be disappointed. Because the truth is my ministry is going to be to people who really surprise you and who you don't even want to be included into your family. You're going to be shocked by the people I invite into this inner circle. That, my friends is so offensive to the Nazareth community that they try to kill one of their own. This same theme is highlighted all throughout Luke's gospel. We see it in the parable of the prodigal son, where the elder son, for his loyalty, expects at least some level of fair treatment, and he's enraged when the father chooses to throw a party over this prodigal son's return. How dare you let him come back in after what he's done? And so it is with Jesus' hometown audience. They are enraged. Look, Jesus, we are the faithful people. We're the one who raised you up. We deserve the special privileges. Stay here with us. Don't go out to all those people who don't deserve you. Now, I know the Nazarite's reaction might sound a little bit over the top, but the truth is, my friends, there is something about the gospel when it is spoken so purely that it is deeply offensive. The gospel, when it is purely presented, rubs against all of our modern sensibilities of fairness, does it not? Especially, I think, in an American capitalist economy where we're encouraged to work hard to earn everything we ever want, God's jubilee economy rubs us the wrong way. And that's because We want to earn things. We want the good to be rewarded. But God's grace comes to all. It is offered to all because God's grace cannot be earned. Jesus offers us to accept it. Not all do, but it is offered to all. No matter where you come from, no matter what you've done. God offers it lavishly, including to those we may deem unworthy. And at that, we find offense. 
but it is precisely in the offense that lies the truth of God's goodwill to all people. And that, my friends, is the good news of Christ's message. It's really good news because the truth is we're all undeserving, aren't we? None of us deserves to be welcomed into the family, but Christ invites us there anyway. And Christ invites not just us, but all the world that God so loves. This is the good news of the gospel. Let us pray. Jesus Christ, we thank you that your grace and mercy are so lavish, that you extend it far and wide. We pray that we would receive your good news and that we would be your instruments of good news to all the world. May we and those around us have hearts that are open to receive and implement your jubilee promises today and always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, we come to the table of the Lord's Supper, which is to us a physical reminder of God's jubilee promises to us, that Christ came into the world to take on flesh and blood so that we might have communion with him, so that we might have forgiveness of sins, so that we might be formed into one family of God's people, so that we might be reminded of the hope that we have that when Christ returns, one day all will be made right, all injustices and oppressions will cease, and we will all live in the ultimate shalom which God intended for us. That is why Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it after giving thanks, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after they had eaten supper, he took the cup and he poured it out and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, remember me. Remember that I have come to make you whole, that I have come to make communities whole, that I have come to make the world whole, that we get to see glimpses of this now, we get to participate in the mission now, but that it will be fulfilled one day in its entirety when Christ returns. This is what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. I invite the elders to come forward now. We will partake... by the form of intinction, so you will tear off a little piece of bread and dip it in the cup, partake, and then return to your seat. We'll have four stations, one here, one here, one in the back, one in that back corner. We ask you just to go to the station that's closest to you. If you can't get up, just raise your hand and one of the elders will bring the elements to you. As we are partaking of communion, I invite you to pray, to write some notes in your bulletin, if that will help you remember things later, Um, to consider all that Christ has done for you, all that Christ has done for the world. Consider how Christ, after he feeds you here, invites you then to go feed those who are hungry.
Consider how Christ, who heals you, invites you to go be a healing agent to all the world. All of these things we remember and celebrate at the table. Brothers and sisters, the elements are ready. Come, for all things are now ready. Receive 